I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, James Ketterer. Jim Ketterer is Dean of the School of Continuing Education at the American University in Cairo, and previously served as Dean of International Studies at Bard College and Academic Director of the Bard Globalization and International Affairs Program. Welcome, Professor. Uh, Dean, it's a pleasure to connect with you today. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much for having me and for being interested in what we're doing here in Egypt. Absolutely. Let me ask you to begin with, when we think of continuing education, for our listeners who would like a global perspective on the state of continuing education curricula around the world, what are you doing in Egypt, and how does it compare to the global landscape of continuing education studies? Sure. Well, I think that's a very good place to start because it's it's rather confusing. If we look at you know many universities and colleges across the United States and in other parts of the world that carry out this function, we see that they use different words to describe what they're doing, and in some cases they're doing different things, but largely it's it's some kind of activity outside the normal, quote-unquote, traditional undergraduate, graduate part of an academic curriculum. And so you will hear some schools refer to lifelong learning or professional and continuing studies or extended education uh, or continuing education or some combination of all of those things. And uh, some schools have created um, those curricula rather recently it is a growing trend, and I think it's one that's appropriate to be a growing trend. It just so happens that at AUC, the School of Continuing Education, under various different names throughout its history, has been in existence since 1924. So that's most of the entirety of the existence of AUC, which was founded 101 years ago today. And so for most of that time, there's been this function, this desire to reach out to the broad swath of Egyptian society and offer a different kinds of educational um, initiatives to many different sorts of people. So that's why it's so hard to define. And I think that's the case at AUC or, or any university that's running this is that we're, we're doing lots of things for lots of different people. And just to put it in some perspective, the undergraduate uh, um, headcount at AUC, I think is about 5,500 we have another 1,000 graduate students. And in continuing education, we have between 25,000 and 30,000 students a year. So the scale is different. Uh, the, the walks of life that our students come from and what they're doing and what they want to learn is different. And uh, what they do with that education after they leave us, uh, or we hope they don't leave us. We hope they stay with us truly as lifelong learners, but they, they do different things with it than a traditional education um, that um, anyone would be familiar with uh, across the United States or the, the rest of the world. Dean, from the comparative lens, looking at the contemporary state of continuing education, citizens' education, adult education, uh, it is framed differently in, in different contexts, on different continents, in different institutions. But if you were to compare your program um, to the School of Continuing Education at Harvard, for instance, which is a leader in the field in the United States, mm -hmm. or elsewhere across the Middle East or on other continents, uh, what are the unifying principles of how continuing education is approached today? 
Well, uh, I, I think um, the unifying across those many things is that I, I think is diversity, is a diversity of programs for a diversity of learners um, of all ages. And so whether it's Harvard or AUC or McGill that runs a very interesting program or many, many other places, that, um, that's really what they're trying to do. And it's also carries out this function of being the outward facing institution within the university or within a college. Um, I think, you know, we all know that uh, colleges and college towns are notorious for town gown relations that are often not so great. And uh, sometimes it's overblown. Sometimes it's not quite as true as, as people say it is. But um, there tends to be frictions between these two what are seen as separate worlds. And so a school like mine not only is offering educational opportunities for lots of different people, but it's also offering a bridge between the institution and the rest of society. And it's sort of demystifying what AUC is for the rest of Egyptian society. And in fact, across the Middle East, North Africa and, and beyond, uh, because AUC really is a global institution and has a, a high profile and we have learners who, who come to us from beyond the borders of Egypt. When you say it is a bridge um, for these learners, to what extent can it be a bridge for these learners to more fully practice their citizenship and pursue not just academic freedom, but social and political freedom? Well, let me give you an example of, of the ways in which we work and the, the things that we focus on at this school. So uh, we, have a, we have a great program that um, is not just a, a case of us, you know, sending out uh, messages about come take this course and you can pay a certain amount for it and then you get a certificate. Rather, this particular program is funded by the U.S. Embassy and we work with the U.S. Embassy to implement it across the country of Egypt not just in Cairo and not just in, in the big cities of Egypt, but really across the country, working with students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And while they're in high school, their second and third years in high school, this supplements their education that they're getting in, in governmental schools. So they voluntarily sign up for this. It's a very selective, competitive program. And when they're selected for the program and they commit to it and they spend two years with us on in evenings, on weekends, summer camps, they, they're learning not only, number one, how to, to speak English better, to use English uh, as a tool for, for expanding their studies, but also cross-cultural communication, leadership, uh, teamwork, uh, college readiness, all of these sorts of things. And so at the end of this, students can then decide what to do with it. They, they can take it in any number of different directions. We're giving them the tools that they can use to have lots of different options and how they want to manifest those options, what they want to do with their, their academic careers, their professional careers, their lives as citizens. That's, that's really up to them. But it's our job, in, not just with this program, but with the school, is to give them those sorts of tools and to give them those sorts of options. And it's, it's really a very moving program. It's very exciting to meet these students. And uh, we've been doing it long enough that we have a lot of alumni in the pipeline who've gone on to do 
uh, really tremendous things. And so it, it speaks for itself. But this, this kind of, you know, relationship, U.S. government um, and the embassy working with the American University in Cairo and then working with these Egyptian students who are in governmental schools across the country, it's really a powerful combination. And, and it, it sort of gets students ready to, you know, on the launching pad. And they really do launch. When you think of the challenges of globalization during the pandemic and your wealth of experience in the United States and abroad, uh, learning and teaching and uh, being a key administrator of that education for thousands, tens of thousands of young people, what are you most disturbed by um, in the inability to find that common ground um, in, you know, building those bridges. Um, And and what are you most optimistic about? Uh, Because the pandemic has required us to refocus in ways um, in a system that was already uh, problematic in that uh, globalization was taking place, but it was taking place with, a tremendous amount of inequity as the result. Uh, so I, I wonder when you step back from the educational perch, uh, the, the so-called ivory tower and, and kind of look at the trend of globalization and this moment of upheaval during the pandemic, what strikes you as sort of the most disturbing development and, and the most promising development? Well, I think the most disturbing development uh, started before uh, the pandemic and and that was uh it's it's the american role in globalization and so not to make it all american centric but the united states has for many many decades perhaps longer uh enjoyed uh, a special area of consideration because of the um prestige and the kind of magnetizing attraction of its institutions of higher education and that um, even people who didn't particularly um, like American foreign policy uh, would often find themselves attracted to American education, that that, that was seen in a different category. In fact, uh, John Waterbury, who taught for Princeton at, for, for many years and then later was the president of the American University in Beirut, he wrote a great article a couple of years after 9-11. And the title of the article says it all. Uh, hate your policies, love your institutions. And that even in those very difficult times and with those difficult audiences, American higher education was seen as a beacon and a real attraction. And so to see that um, many, many barriers have been put up over the last few years that have made it difficult for students from around the world to really realize their dreams and come to the United States for an American educational experience of one form or another, study abroad, Fulbright, uh, studying for four years uh, at an undergraduate institution or graduate degrees, what have you, that it became increasingly difficult and increasingly less attractive. And so we've seen the, the numbers of international students coming to the United States dropping even before the pandemic. And so I think that this has been exacerbated by the pandemic, as many trends have, good and bad, have really been exacerbated. And 
that's really an, uh, a profoundly unfortunate trend, not just for those students, but for the United States itself. These students bring a huge amount of energy, of brain power, um, and not, uh, not um, to be overlooked, they bring a lot of their wealth, their financial wealth. They pay for their educations. They also go out and they spend money in the American economy. The, the multiplier effect of their presence in our country, uh, intellectually, financially, and otherwise, is really um, very important. And so I'm a firm believer that globalization has a lot to do with um, not only the free movement of money around the world and ideas around the world, but, but of people, that moving people across borders and that this is really the kind of engine of globalization over time. And so to see barriers put up to that has been very disturbing. In terms of promising trends, I would say that um, we have seen that, that people have persisted, nevertheless, that while the numbers are down, there's still vast numbers of people making those sorts of moves. And in the midst of the pandemic, um, back to my school specifically, so if you had been talking to me a few months ago, I would have said, well, you know, we, we do very little in terms of online education. We have a few courses, uh, they're kind of boutique courses, and we hope to expand them. And the pandemic has forced us to, um, to double down and move a lot of our courses online and to do it in a way that addresses those inequities that you were talking about. Because many of our students come from very... Um, very difficult circumstances. They don't have huge no amount of resources. These are the students at the School of Continuing Education. So we've had to make those courses affordable, and we've had to also make them accessible with regard to the most basic kind of technology. And we've worked hard to do that, and we've found not only an audience across Egypt, but also, as I said before, more and more students outside the, the borders of Egypt who are interested in what we have to, to offer. So I think that kind of accessibility that addressing inequity um, is, is very important. And it's been an important um, piece of the puzzle for us over the last few months. But I should hasten to add, we have not, and we will not lose sight of the power of in-person education. And when uh, the pandemic is truly waning and we can really move back in a major and safe way to face-to-face -face education, we have taken this pa these past few months as time to retool what we're going to do face-to-face. -face. And we're not only going to continue our career development classes, our classes in English language, but we're going to expand the sorts of offerings that we have in the liberal arts, philosophy classes, history classes, literature classes, music classes, because we firmly believe that students who come from any walk of life really deserve and are hungry for um, the best that AUC has to offer. We can offer it in a different form through our school, but we can still offer um, the, these really kind of intellectually essential and challenging classes. And we know there's an audience out there for it. One of the realizations of the pandemic, if you were an international student seeking to study in the U.S., is just how manifest that inequity is in the U.S., but more than inequity uh, or a different kind of inequity is the vast anti-science um, and undisciplined public policy response relative to more advanced democracies, uh, which certainly is a consequence of the negligence of the American response 
uh, over the span of many months now. Um, don't you think that some of the students who were perhaps pursuing international studies abroad in the U.S. are deterred as a result of the American failure to control the virus in the way it has been, uh, certainly in, in Asia and Korea, a uh, number of island countries, Australia, New Zealand, um, and to some extent in, in Germany, uh, but, but largely um, Europe and the United States um, have been failures in mitigating the virus. And I, and I do wonder if that is going to have a generational consequence for those young and older people who would be interested in studying there in the future. Uh, I think you're, you're quite right. It's certainly an issue. Uh, and I think it's an, it's an issue that uh, people that I speak to, people who are asking me about what's going on, what's going on in the United States, uh, they, they largely see this as um, not something that is innate to Americans or the United States, but is a manifest of a particular moment and a political, particular political set of circumstances. And so I'm, I think I'm more optimistic that uh, when those circumstances change, and when people can see it changing, that uh, they will, it will not be generational in, in its effects. I should also say, and, and this gets back to the, the nature of, of an institution like AUC, that the sense of being an American institution also can translate outside the borders of the United States. Of course, AUC, where I work, is, is on my mind every day. But we have other American institutions across the Middle East and North Africa that are American in many different forms. Sometimes they're American in just the style of education they offer. Sometimes they really are a branch campus of an American institution that is located maybe in, in the Gulf countries. Um, or, or they're American in some other, other form. And so students have lots of other options. And they, I think they have availed themselves of those options while they've looked at this moment back at the United States and said, something is going on there that makes me uncomfortable. Um, and in some cases, it's, it seems downright dangerous with regard to the, the, um, the spread of uh, COVID-19. Um, but uh, I think overall, when we get beyond this moment, this crisis moment, that we can see all these things kind of fit together in a nice um, they're woven together in a nice fabric that AUC is part of American higher education, even though we're located in Egypt, and that the, the, the gold standard of American higher education will continue on and continue to be interesting, irrespective of this, this very difficult moment on many different levels. But you're right, it's, it certainly poses a serious challenge, and I think it it's, has to give pause to many people who are leading these institutions to say, what do we stand for and how can we comport ourselves in, in this difficult time to put us in the right kind of position as we go forward? With respect to diplomacy in the Middle East, during these past four years, you had a rather large disconnect in the desire to normalize relations bilaterally between 
Israel and Middle Eastern countries. But from the home front, you had a completely paradoxical approach to multilateral intervention, but specifically when it came to immigration and the student and refugee communities to which you allude, and specifically the policy known as the Muslim ban, um, the Trump administration's ban on immigration from a number of Muslim-majority countries. As we conclude, when you consider that disconnect of wanting to normalize relations in the region, perhaps superficially, um, perhaps symbolically, and, and such a drastic change from who we are welcoming as a country, speaking from the American perspective, what, how has the Arab world and how has Egypt specifically responded to, to that, which seems, again, paradoxical that is sending mixed signals? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's important to, to get a sense of how most people in a place like Egypt, but this is, would be true in, in countries around the world, how they really interact with American foreign policy. There is policy, of course, at the macro level, the things you're talking about, you know, normalization of relations, negotiations that are ongoing, decisions about intervention, immigration policies. You know, the, these are, are enormous issues um, and they are the kinds of things that would be headlines in the New York Times or breaking news on CNN. But the reality is, uh, to bring it back to my school, but also my daily experience is that, you know, my office, I work on the old campus of AUC is about two blocks from the U.S. Embassy. And I, I personally and my school has a good working relationship with the foreign service officers who are running the public affairs section of the embassy and the Egyptians who work in the embassy. And what we work on are the day to day kind of programs that interact with people, the kinds of, of educational programs, the sorts of things that bring, bring Egyptians and Americans together um, on the, the, what might appear to be mundane, might appear to be inconsequential compared to those macro level grand strategy diplomatic initiatives. But I, I argue to anybody who will listen is that those sorts of programs under the heading of what is called public diplomacy, are so effective. They are perhaps the most effective thing that the United States government carries out around the world because the impact on so many people is so positive. And the, the, the money put into it is not that much. I personally wish it would be more because it is so effective. And you can just look at decades and decades of people who have benefited from these programs and have, walk away from them having a deeper understanding of the complexities of the United States and of the relationship between Egypt and the United States or whatever. But it also just helps them personally. And I think it helps us personally uh, as Americans to do it. And um, places like AUC and other similar institutions are well positioned to be at that center point. So I would bring it back down to the level of the the 
sorts of programs that my school works on and the kinds of gains that we look for that often don't end up in the New York Times, though I wish they would, but I think are enormously important. And so I hope as people rethink how American diplomacy should position itself around the world um, over, let's say, the next four years, they should be thinking very hard about the conduct of public diplomacy and its role in the overall um, way in which the United States uh, approaches the rest of the world. Because the conditions on the ground ultimately have to be consistent with, harmonious with, at some equilibrium with the big picture. Uh, I don't know that you're able to achieve the kind of depth and continuity of diplomacy without both things working in tandem and without the public on the ground having some awareness of the micro and macro um, challenges and um, public sentiment has the potential to increase morale as a result of understanding both the micro and macro. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, you, what you just said is the perfect advertisement for why these things really need to be coordinated and why there is, you know, there is the need in Washington at the highest levels of, let's say, the State Department, but also USAID and the National Security Council and other places to think hard about what you just said. How can we coordinate these things in a way that makes it all effective at no matter what level it's happening and to do it in partnership with the institutions like AUC, uh, the, the governments uh, to do it. And, you know, sometimes it's bilateral, sometimes they're multilateral uh, initiatives. And uh, there really has to be coordination kind of up and down the, those levels of diplomacy but also across the, the various actors who were involved in these oftentimes very complicated issues at those, at those many levels. So uh, when it's done right, I think it can be very effective. And when it's not done right, um, it's either just kind of lacking effectiveness or in some cases it just comes across as um, highly counterproductive. Uh, so public diplomacy shouldn't just be happening uh, as a separate sort of thing that's disconnected from everything else. Um, but at the same time, it's not there to be an advertisement for policy on the grand strategy level either. It, it really is there to engage people in the sort of way that uh, SCE, well, the School of Continuing Education, does. Jim Ketterer, Dean of the School of Continuing Education at American University in Cairo. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you so much for having me.